0: Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled, And to the South. We move aside now from our review of the Reformation in Europe to get caught up with what's happening in Africa. In many, and maybe most, popular treatments of church history, the emphasis is on what's going on in Europe. That's what most church-based Christian history courses do and many Western colleges and seminaries want to focus on. We've already devoted several podcasts to the Church in Asia, both the Eastern and Greek Orthodox churches, as well as what's called the Church in the East, also known as the Syrian, sometimes the Nestorian Church. We'll jump the Atlantic to take a look at the Church in the New World, but before we do, we shift our attention south to Africa. As we've seen, North Africa was one of the formative cradles of Christianity, That's where Tertullian, Cyprian, and Augustine, three of the great Latin fathers of the faith, lived. The church at Alexandria was one of the four main churches in the early centuries. Egypt was highly influential in defining what the faith looked like throughout much of Christendom because of men like Antony and Pacomius, the desert fathers. Their strict asceticism is credited with forming the early picture of what popular, but not necessarily biblical, holiness looked like and which framed the thinking of Christians for hundreds of years. In fact, it led in large part to monasticism. In this episode, we'll track the course of Christianity as it made its way across the African continent. The genesis of Ethiopian Christianity rests in the book of Acts, chapter 8, where a deacon in the Jerusalem church named Philip was used by God to lead an Ethiopian eunuch and royal treasurer to faith in Christ. Now, there's no record of what impact this man had when he returned home, but the fact that he made a special trip to Jerusalem in the first century reinforces the idea that there was an already Jewish-influenced community in Ethiopia. Like so many of the Jews scattered around the world, meeting in local synagogues, these were the prime candidates for the preaching of the gospel of Christ because Jesus was indeed the Jewish Messiah. The book of Acts shows us that it was among the God-fearing Gentiles who attended synagogues that the gospel found its most receptive audience. And so it's likely that when this Ethiopian eunuch returned home, he shared what he'd learned and a church was birthed. But not being nurtured by apostolic leadership in Jerusalem, it eventually went into decline. Before doing so, it may have left some seeds behind, waiting for later watering. The best record that we have attaches the planting of the church in Ethiopia to a slave named Fermentius, right around the year A.D. 300. Fermentius was on a trading voyage when he was captured by pirates and sold to the king of Oxum. He proved of such service to the king that he was granted his freedom 40 years later. He immediately went to Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, telling him of Ethiopia's need of missionary activity. Athanasius then consecrated Frumentius as the Bishop of Aksum. Thus began a long tradition in which Ethiopian Orthodoxy looked to Alexandria in Egypt and later the Egyptian Coptic Church to appoint its leaders, and that tradition continued all the way up till 1959. Frumentius' pioneering work was furthered by what are known as the Nine Saints from Syria who arrived 150 years after Frumentius. Their work saw Ethiopia become a Christian kingdom. The government remained focused on a Christian monarch in several periods of upheaval through the following centuries, up until the reign of Haile Selassie in the 20th century. There are characteristics of Ethiopian Christianity that deserve special attention. It was an extremely Jewish form of Christian tradition, and for long periods observed a Saturday Sabbath rather than Sunday as the day of worship. It shared with the Falasha Jews of Ethiopia a great respect for the history of King Solomon and his visitor, the Queen of Sheba. They bore a tenacious legend that, after their meeting, the Ark of the Covenant was removed from Jerusalem and taken to Ethiopia, where it was stored in secret. Various reasons were given for this, most notably that as Solomon began his slide into apostasy, one of the faithful priests in the temple recognized that the day would come when foreigners would destroy the temple. So, to preserve the Ark of the Covenant, a duplicate was made, switched out with a real Ark, which was then taken off uh, for safekeeping in Ethiopia. This led to the production of multitudes of miniature Arks called Tabit, displayed in places of Christian worship. The Ethiopian account of this royal meeting between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba is a document called the Kebra Nagast, which dates to the early 6th century. Ethiopian Christians considered themselves Christian Jews. They retained the practice of circumcision alongside baptism. Monarchs regarded their dynasty as coming from King Solomon. In fact, one of Haile Selassie's titles was Lion of Judah. Like the Egyptian church that it's derived from, the Ethiopian church has a strong monastic tradition. The Nine Saints founded a number of communities around Oxum, places like Domo, a monastery that lasted for a thousand years. Around 1270, the famous monastery of Dabra Labanos became a center of renewal. Axum itself had a large five-aisled cathedral, eventually destroyed by the Muslims in the 16th century. And at that point, the whole kingdom would have become permanently Muslim had it not been for Portuguese military assistance in a decisive battle in 1543. Much credit for the survival of the Ethiopian church goes to their ancient translation of the Bible into Ge'ez a musical worship tradition practiced by the laity. Over the centuries, different Christian groups have rallied to the aid of the Ethiopian church to assist them against oppressors. And despite their appreciation for that help, the Ethiopian church has resisted attempts to align themselves with any outside group. Estimates are that the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has about 45 million members today and is the major religious group in the country. The 12th and 13th century rock-cut churches of the Lalibela region still delight tourists with the uniqueness of their architecture and the improbability of their construction. The survival of the church in Ethiopia underlines the tragic fate of the church next door in the ancient region of Nubia, today known as Sudan. Nubia possessed a flourishing Christian kingdom from the 8th to the 12th century. Centered at the capital of Khartoum, Nubian bishops, along with their Ethiopian peers, were consecrated by the patriarch of Alexandria. When a Muslim king ascended the throne, it spelled the end of Nubian Christianity. Best evidence suggests that the church in Nubia began as a mission sent out by the Byzantine Emperor Justinian and his wife Theodora in the 6th century, and by 580, the entire population were followers of Jesus. But by 1500, the entire region was Muslim, and what had been a flourishing church disappeared. In the 1960s, prior to the flooding of northern Sudan for the Aswan Dam, excavations revealed the rich remains of Nubian churches. Remember now back to the world history class of your freshman or sophomore year of high school. Do you remember what ethnic and national groups sailed down the west coast of Africa, looking for a way to get to the rich trading ports of the Indian Ocean? It was the Portuguese. Their progress down the west coast of Africa resulted in trading centers at Elmina on the Gold Coast, modern-day Ghana, in 1482, and expeditions up the River Zaire in 1483 through 87. An expedition in 1491 saw a local king named Mabanza-Congo baptized and renamed Joao I after the reigning Portuguese king Jawao II. Joao is Portuguese for John. Following King Congo's conversion, the Christianization of the region continued under his successor, King Mavumba nzinga renamed Afonso. He made Christianity the religion of the nobility, taking titles like Marquis from the Portuguese aristocracy. Afonso's son Henrique was sent to Lisbon for education and was made a bishop in 1521. Unfortunately, he died not long after his return to Africa in 1530. King Afonso made regular appeals to the Portuguese for assistance in establishing the Christian faith from 1514 onwards. A Portuguese priest of the time left a vivid portrait of Afonso still regarded in the Congo as the Apostle of the Congo. He was a successful preacher who established a royal tradition of preaching, and by all reports, this Congolese king was a genuine Billy Graham of his time and people. Now, that's a very Western-centric way of putting it, isn't it? It would be just as accurate to say that Billy Graham was an American King Afonso, or even better, an American Mavimba Nzinga. After Afonso's death in 1543, The story of the Congo was one of missed opportunities. Though he made frequent appeals for missionaries to come and work in Africa, the contest between Spain and Portugal stalled their efforts. Since the Jesuits were international, they arrived in the capital of San Salvador and opened a seminary in 1624. A Congolese ambassador visited Pope Paul V in 1608, an event which is commemorated in a Vatican fresco. A minor order of the Franciscans called the Capuchins tried to carry on an outreach to the Congo, but conditions were brutal and many of them died. By 1700, Christianity was fading from the region. It wasn't until Baptist missionaries arrived in the 19th century that things picked up once more. By the late 18th century, the slave trade from West Africa to the New World ran into the thousands. After the successful campaign for abolition led by William Wilberforce, with the help of a remarkable African in England named Olaudah Aquino, a British naval squadron patrolled the coast from 1807 searching for slavers, but the Portuguese still managed to export thousands across the Atlantic to the slave fields of Brazil, just as the English had done to the sugar plantations of the West Indies through the notorious Middle Passage. Sierra Leone became a dumping ground for the British Navy's spoils captured from the slavers. The Church Missionary Society, founded in 1799, set to work providing relief and evangelism for ex slaves. By 1860, 60,000 freed slaves had been dropped off at Freetown. But uprooted from their tribal structures and unable to return to their homes, they were gradually settled in what, in many cases, became model Christian villages. Among the arrivals in Sierra Leone was a group of 1,200 freed American slaves. These had organized themselves into 15 ships at Halifax, Nova Scotia and arrived singing hymns as they came ashore with their Baptist, Methodist, and other pastors. In time, Methodist life was greatly strengthened by the arrival from England of Thomas Birch Freeman, the son of an African father and English mother. Being of African descent, Freeman was able to survive the West African climate that had proved fatal for many European missionaries, and Freeman gave long service in Africa. Eventually, some of those repatriated Africans of Sierra Leone caught the vision of returning to their tribes with the gospel. Among them was Samuel Crowther. Crowther had been liberated from a Portuguese slaver in 1821. He was one of the first students at the new missionary college at Fora Bay. He became a missionary to his branch of the Yoruba tribe in the 1830s, at the same time translating books of the New Testament. Crowther was part of a growing trend in missions that of planting indigenous churches that were self-supporting, self-governing, and self-extending. Johannes van der Kemp helped found the Netherlands Missionary Society. A retired soldier, he became a doctor before arriving in Cape Town, South Africa, in 1799. His arrival among the Boers was like a match lit to a powder keg. The Boers were Dutch farmers of South Africa who tried to maintain their distance from the British and constant conflict with local tribes. Vanderkemp was brilliant and upset the conservative-minded Boers with his marriage to a Malagasy slave girl to say nothing of his virulent opposition to slavery and the oppression of Africans. He immediately went to work bringing the gospel to South Africans and showed a special care for those displaced by armed conflict. Arriving in Cape Town from England at the same time was Robert Moffat, whose style of mission work was very different from that of the indigenous designs of Crother and his European friends. Moffat's philosophy of missions was more old school. He built a mission compound which sought to preserve a little slice of England within the fence. Africans were invited then to come to the missionaries for preaching and teaching of a European brand of Christianity. He gave 50 years to the mission north of the Orange River. This was where the famous Scottish missionary David Livingston spent his first years after arriving in Africa. Livingston married Moffat's daughter, Mary, and Moffat guided Livingston in the early years of of his time there in the field. Livingston became a physician in Glasgow in 1840 and arrived a year later in Cape Town. His and Mary's first child died in 1846. They lost another four years later. Then in 1852, Mary took their other children back to Scotland, which proved a bad move because she moved in with Livingston's parents, in-laws. You can imagine how it went. It didn't went well, and Mary began tipping the bottle in her loneliness. After Livingston's epic journeys of 1853 through 56 through the interior of Africa and his triumphant reception back home, husband and wife were reunited. Mary then accompanied him on his Zambezi expedition of 1858, but died. Livingston's eldest son, Robert, also died in 1864, but as a soldier in the Union cause of the American Civil War. Though Scottish, Livingston joined the Union Army to help the cause of abolition, a value that he had learned from his courageous and monumentally giving father. As you know, David Livingston was found by the explorer H.M. Stanley in 1871 and died in May of 73. His funeral, paid for by the British government, was held in Westminster Abbey on April 18th of 1874, with two royal carriages for the family, which included Moffat, two of Livingston's sons, and his daughter, to whom he had been particularly close in his last years. Livingston spent his first 11 years at the Moffat Mission Station, but felt that the style of mission work wasn't effective. He conceived his plan of exploration, which took him west to the Luanda coast of Angola and then east to the mouth of the Zambezi. You've likely heard the story, true it turns out, that the Africans came to love Livingston so intensely because they knew that he loved them so much that when he died, they consented to allow his body to return to his native Scotland, though his body was buried in London, but they claimed his heart for Africa. While there were scattered attempts to take the gospel into East Africa throughout the centuries, nothing ever really took hold. It wasn't until Protestant missionaries of the 19th century arrived that a consistent work began. Then the church began to grow in Kenya and Uganda, but Protestants weren't the only ones bringing the gospel to East Africa. The Roman Catholic Archbishop of Algiers, Charles Lavagrier founded the Missionaries of Our Lady of Africa, known as the White Fathers. A group arrived in Uganda in 1878, and that brought a wave of conversions, also an outbreak of violence between competing groups of Muslims, Catholics, and Anglicans. Infrequent but brutal atrocities moved the British to send in troops to quell the disturbances, and the region became a British protectorate in 1893. The colonial period that followed was a time of mass response to Christianity in the country. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.